Hi, and welcome to a special bonus episode of Crashed in Roswell. My name is Kyle Bullock, and today I'm bringing you what I think might be one of the most important episodes in this series, and perhaps about Roswell ever. There are plenty of podcasts out there that talk about Roswell, or even give an overview of the events of the 1940s UFO crash in our desert. None that I have found dive into specific focus detail on what happened, and today I want to fill that information void. Think about it. If I asked you to name me three facts about the infamous Roswell UFO crash, you might be able to tell me where it happened, though I doubt with much accuracy. You might be able to tell me a little about the cover-up, basically that the government said it was a weather balloon, but I doubt you'd be able to tell me much more than that. In truth, there is an abundance of facts and details that we know for certain about the UFO crash, details that we don't hear much about when people talk about Roswell. My fascination with the Roswell lore started several years ago when I had the chance to hear these unfiltered facts from one of the world's leading experts on Roswell. His name is Dennis Balthaser. He has studied the subject for decades and is well-respected across the globe as a thorough, fact-based researcher on Roswell. For years, he has been one of the most sought-after tour guides in the world, leading tourists from across the globe on an expansive, in-depth look at the people, places, and events that put Roswell on the map. Recently, Dennis hung up his hat and retired from giving tours. A loss for anyone who didn't get a chance to hear the story from him. So today, I want to present a special episode with one of the world's leading experts on UFOs and Roswell, and let you hear the uninterrupted story of what we know happened in the New Mexican desert in the 1940s. In this episode, we will focus less on John's story and more on the overall story of Roswell, the UFO crash, and the effects of the crash in the years since. Perhaps it will shed more light on our story but also shed light on our relationship with the government and cover-ups like this one. Before we get to the episode, I want to thank our sponsors, the International UFO Museum and Research Center here in Roswell, New Mexico. The UFO Center is a mainstay in our community that has had millions of visitors walk through its doors to experience the Roswell story firsthand. The museum offers exhibits including the 1947 Roswell incident, but also stories of ancient aliens, UFO close encounters, alien abductions, and many, many photo ops from over the years and from around the world. The museum also boasts the second largest UFO and alien related library in the entire world, second only to the Vatican, believe it or not. They have tens of thousands of books, magazines, periodicals, audiovisual materials, and much, much more for the ufologists looking for answers to what is going on in the skies that we can't explain. If you're visiting Roswell or you're even remotely interested in Roswell, you've got to plan a trip to the UFO Center. They're open seven days a week, so there's no excuse to miss out. You can plan your visit at roswellufomuseum.com. That's roswellufomuseum.com. And now, here is my conversation with UFO researcher Dennis Balthaser. I want to ask you real quickly, what is your background? What is your education? How did you end up studying UFOs all these years? Well, my background is civil engineering. I had 33 years in Texas with the highway department. 
doing quality assurance and quality control and materials that we use to build highways and bridges. Uh, my interest in UFOs or Roswell particularly started about the 1980s. I started hearing about Roswell and then I found a book, bought another book and wound up with four or five hundred books over the years. And every time I read a book, the more I read, the more I realized there's more to this than a weather balloon. And I kept buying books and kept buying books. I retired in 1996 in Texas, moved to Roswell. I actually went to work with an engineering company here for a couple of months. And then I pulled not the smartest thing in my life, but I quit working for the engineering company and started volunteering at the UFO Museum for free. <laughs> so I had a good retirement plus a salary and I gave that all up to do this research. Uh, probably not the smartest thing I ever did. But I was fascinated with Roswell. That broadened into other areas of research like Area 51, underground bases, and the pyramids of Giza in Egypt. So I had four different areas that I was researching, primarily Roswell. I got to meet Stanton Friedman in 1996 when he was here to do a lecture at the festival. He was the, he's the leading expert. He was the years. top re civilian researcher, in fact, the, the first civilian researcher to do Roswell. And him and I became close friends and worked together for some 27 years. I worked at the museum as a volunteer for two and a half years. I was on the board of directors and I was what they considered the investigator for the museum at the time. And I left that and started doing research on my own in 1998. And then seven years ago, I picked up on these Roswell UFO tours. And today at 78 years old, 79 next week, I will not be able to say I'm retired from all of it. <laughs> I will say this, you're a humble guy. Uh, so I will say, you know, you are in my mind probably the, the leading expert on all of this and uh, oh. certainly one of the sharpest minds when it comes to this subject that I've ever talked to or read. So uh, I've um, done a lot of research over the last 30 years and talked to a lot of people that were actually involved which has been a blessing for me to have that opportunity. Because most researchers never know any of the people that were actually involved. Yeah. They claim to be experts, and that's a problem. Now some people listening might be skeptical about the subject of Roswell and the UFO crash. They, they may think that you are trying to capitalize on something or deceive people to make a story sound better. You know, this, this podcast, it, we've been asking listeners to question the story and to question me for goodness sakes right so what would you say to a listener who may come into this interview that we're doing now with their skepticisms or their doubts about your version of the story well skepticism's okay but unless they can prove me wrong they probably need to accept some of what I'm saying because what I have found with debunkers and critics is that they don't agree with what we serious researchers say, but they don't bring anything new to the table. 
They just disagree with what we're saying. They don't counter with No, they don't counter with, with any factual information. I try to deal strictly in factual information. Having known some of the, research, the people involved, I don't buy all of their stories because I question some of theirs. Uh, but overall, I think the people that were involved witnessed something 70 years ago that still would not explain today. Hmm. And that's where I put my, my confidence in those people that were here actually involved in it. It's not enough, even for me, it's not enough to say well, it was a weather balloon or, or even that it was just some random spying device and we move on because obviously something happened. Yeah. Something that we, we really don't explain even if it was just some mass hysteria that some people I've, al I've always said if it turns out not to be what I think it was, that's fine. I'll go fishing. <laughs> I don't need the frustration and the expense I've had. You're not in this for profit. I've lost a lot of money doing the research over the years. Uh, the tours were a good thing financially, but there was still a lot of expense involved. And you don't do this, you don't do this for profit. You do it because you believe that you need to know the truth. And I don't think we've been given the truth. So this is a good point. At this point, I want you to start from the beginning. I want to talk, I want to talk about the Roswell story. Simply tell us what we know happened in 1947. I'll do my best. I'll interject with some questions if it's still relevant. But uh, I, I want you to tell us the story like we're on, on a tour and we're here to hear Here's what we know, and maybe some of the questions that we have about the Roswell story, starting from the beginning. So where, where do we even start? In July 1947, there was a ranch foreman, Mac Brazel, foreman, not the owner, working alone on that ranch, 80, 65 miles northwest of here near Corona. At night during a thunderstorm, he heard a sound louder than thunder, an explosion of some kind. He went out the next morning on horseback, check his sheep, look at his windmills for damage. He came upon a debris field, pieces of something scattered three quarters of a mile long by several hundred yards wide. Now the ranch foreman, he knew what weather balloons were. He had recovered them. They had a tag on them from the Air Force for reward. So he'd pick up pieces of the balloon, take it down to the base, get a couple extra dollars, he could use some money as a poor ranch foreman. He didn't know what this was. Talked to his neighbor, Loretta Proctor. He had work to do on the ranch, so about two or three days later, he came to Roswell. He talked to Sheriff Wilcox. The sheriff didn't know what it was either. He contacted the military, got a hold of Major Marcel, top intelligence officer in the world with the atomic bomb group. Marcel and his assistant, Captain Cavett, went up to the ranch late at night, loaded their vehicles with some of the debris, came back to town. When he got back to town, Major Marcel didn't go out to the base. About midnight, he stopped at the house on 7th Street he woke up his wife and 11-year-old son, Jesse Jr., brought some of the material in, put it on the kitchen floor, played with it, tried to piece it together, figure out what it was, and couldn't. 
he told his son, I don't think this is of this world. Now this is a top intelligence officer in the world. He's in charge of the nuclear program? No. Here, or no. He's, he's associated with it? He was ordered to go out to the, to the site by, by a base commander, uh, Blanchard. Blanchard was a colonel, he was a Fulberg colonel, and the base commander, head of the atomic bomb group in the Pacific when they dropped the bombs on Japan. Oh, I see. And the 509th of the atomic bomb group, including the Enola Gay, were stationed here in 1947. So they were the main main group involved in the, in the cover-up. But he... What was it, let me ask real quick, what was it, this guy had seen, Braswell had seen weather balloons. No, he saw, he also saw bodies. Well, he he has previously seen he previously seen weather balloons. He knew what those. Oh were yes, like. yes, yes. What was it about this stuff? Whatever he was picking up that made him go. This seems. Different. It was a material that he had never seen before. The way it's been described, it was very thin. You could crumble it up, and within a few seconds, it went back to its original shape without any creases. There were some eye beams that had some not writing, but some kind of symbols on them. Both Major Marcel and his son, Jesse Jr., thought it looked like hieroglyphics. And back in 47, that would have been the only thing they could reference it to. It wasn't hieroglyphics, we know that. But there was some, some materials involved that the rancher had never seen before. Nor had Major Marcel who was trained in weather balloons and different different aspects for intelligence. So, Major Marcel and his son, to me, were two of the most credible witnesses we've had. Both of them were majors. They were both promoted to light colonel before they got out of the military. I've always thought that was for two reasons. One, to help the retirement, one, to keep them quiet. <laughs> but, uh, Marcel had taken the stuff home, they, they put it out in the kitchen floor and looked at it, couldn't figure out what it was. The next morning he went out to the base, John Ramey called from Fort Worth, Texas and wanted Marcel to fly some of the material to Fort Worth, Texas to his office so he could look at it. So he did. Now I say flying it, he didn't personally fly it, he was on an airplane. Shipped it off. Yeah, it was, some people have said he was in the craft and, and flew it to, <laughs> to Fort Worth. So when he got to General Ramey's office, Ramey decided to ask him, he said, let's go in the map room, show me where this happened. They went in the map room, when they came back out, the material that Marcel had brought was no longer on the desk, and on the floor was a weather balloon. He had Major Marcel pose for pictures with that weather balloon. To this day, I felt sorry for Major Marcel because he was a scapegoat. Mm -hmm. He was forced to take a picture with a weather balloon and tell people that's what it was when he knew it wasn't. And all of this is I, this is all accounts from Marcel. This, this is he's as he's telling the story. I've heard it from his son Jesse Jr., who I knew well, and this was directly from the son what his dad had told him. Wow. Yeah. So, and it seems interesting, I mean, the first thing that I hear in this is, so it's something strange that, okay, a rancher who knew what weather balloons looked like 
knew it wasn't a weather balloon. A, a manger comes along, he picks up pieces that he knows what a weather balloon looks like because he's in charge of weather balloons and this isn't a weather balloon. And so he takes it home. So these are these guys know what they're looking, what they should look at, and then doesn't look anything like it. And that the military takes such interest that they that they actually want it sent. If it was a weather balloon or some other material, why would you go to the trouble of not only shipping it to Fort Worth, but also bringing in the major who, who found it to take a picture? He just, he just went into an interesting point. In addition to General Ramey wanting to look at this, the base commander, Colonel Blanchard, ordered Walter Hart, who is a public relations officer, to write an article and get it out to the news media. That article stated, we have in our possession a flying saucer. They were not in the Roswell Daily Record afternoon edition on July 8th, all over the country. The next morning, July 9th, General Ramey in Fort Worth put out an article saying it was nothing but a weather balloon. Now, if it's a weather balloon, do we need to go public with this? Who in the public would care if it was a weather balloon that crashed? So what was the reason for going public with it? Right. One of the things that came up for me to not know, where did the order come from to write that article? Did General Blanchard, the base commander, take it upon himself to have that article written, or did it come from higher up? either from General Ramey in Fort Worth or even from Washington. The one about the weather balloon? Yes. Yeah. We never did find out where that originated. And and so, but where, so where did the UFO article originate? Who, who broke that story? General Blanchard through Walter Hart who wrote the article. Okay. So he, he says one thing one day, says something different. No, General Blanchard, Blanchard. did okay. the, we have, a, we have it in our possession. General Ramey said it was a weather balloon. Yeah, so it's two different going, people. As it goes up the rank, the story gets but to change. Blanchard answered to Ramey. So would Ramey let Blanchard put out an article like that? Unless he realized, wait a minute, we shouldn't have done that. Let's yeah. cover this up. So the next day he puts out an article saying it was not a weather balloon, I mean, not a flying saucer, it was a weather balloon, and has the picture taken with Major Marcel with that debris. Huh. So, okay. So we're still here. We're still in forty-seven. Oh yeah. And there, there are these stories that we get about bodies being at the wreckage. Okay. I've I've seen and read things all over the board here. What What do we know? And what are the questions that we don't know or even haven't answered about bodies at, at a wreckage site? My first My first instinct is so this rancher. He go, Razzle, he goes out, he finds what he knows is in a weather balloon. But if he had seen bodies at the site, wouldn't that immediately make him want to call law enforcement because he sees there are bodies out here. He, he takes a sweet time doing it if... We didn't know so. about him finding the bodies for, for years, about the rancher finding bodies. We always thought that he found the debris and that was it. But before he died, we found out that he had seen bodies about a half a mile from the debris site. Meaning they either knew they were crashing and he ejected, 
or they were in the craft when it came down and, and they were thrown yeah but we didn't know that for a long time and that put a whole different perspective on the story when the rancher said he saw bodies because that made a big difference well if he had seen the bodies why would he wait as long as he did to well he had work to do on the ranch he was he was the only guy on the ranch he was the foreman and he had work to do there with his sheep and things like that so for two days he did his work and then he finally had time to come to town and i guess it you know for those listening it's worth mentioning that first of all this is the 1940s we're far from our tech age that we're in now so information moves slower and second if those if those who are listening are not familiar with the geography of where this happened right uh this is when i said the middle of nowhere i mean this is we are how many miles away from his neighbor the was something like 15 miles away yeah so he, that's a neighbor this isn't this isn't like oh i found bodies and i can you know wave over he had no radio system. he had no telephone no television he had no 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 work with the outside world at all so he had to, he had to do this work around his ranch to get that done that was priority that's what he was hired for he talked to Loretta Proctor and I think she suggested that he bring this stuff to, to Roswell to the sheriff hmm. to see what he thought about it so his pattern of behavior isn't unusual when no. you look at the context these ranchers here are some of the most honest people in the world down to earth just good people had no reason to make up a story and yeah. and wouldn't have so okay there's stories of bodies out here he says years later he says i saw bodies out there is there anybody else obviously these bodies don't just disappear mm -hmm. so who else is who else okay, sees the nurse bodies? the nurse saw bodies she was supposedly in on an examination with the pathologist taking notes this is a nurse that you say Glenn Dennis. Glenn Dennis had, had talked to. And the other person that I know told us that he saw bodies was Walter Hart, who wrote the press release. Walter and Colonel Blanchard had a real close relationship. All the years that I knew Walter, he never referred to the base commander as Colonel Blanchard. He was the old man, hmm. which was respectful. That was a term they used to respect, show respect. And uh, he always talked about the old man this, the old man that. We believe that Blanchard gave Walter permission to go in the airport, in the hangar, and see the bodies. Walter told us that he was about 30 feet away from the bodies laying on the floor. That's as close as they'd let him get. And he said he described them as childlike, 8, 10, 11-year-old child size long arms, four fingers, color was kind of a grayish skin. He couldn't see the eyes or the face. It was faced the other way. And then the nurse, based on the drawing she did, pretty much substantiated that same information. So we have two or three people at least that saw bodies. So just to recap, and, and corroborate some stories. We got a ranch ranch foreman who sees it. The guy who writes the press release, he says he goes in, he sees it, and he describes small bodies. Uh, and then and then there's a nurse mm -hmm. uh, 
to, that Glenn Dennis, who who's a mortician in Roswell, who helped found later helps found the the UFO center here. She talks to him and says, "I saw these bodies." Describes them the same way. Glenn never saw bodies. He never saw them. He was called and asked if he had any hermetically sealed children's coffins. He said, no, I can get them out of Amarillo, have them in the morning, should I order some? No, we're just checking. Now, why would they check on children's, hermetically sealed children's coffins? We don't think they were ever used because we think they were boxed up, iced down, and shipped out of here in a hurry. So they didn't, they didn't use any, any coffins. Hmm. So, this all happens, this is a lot, for, I mean, there's a lot happening here. Okay. In a week. In a week, we've got a, a crash of some we don't know, a cover-up from the news story, we've got bodies that some people have seen, um, and that even, you know, the base coming in there sees it, but we, we don't hear any eyewitness about that, and we can maybe understand why. Then what happens? What What is the response? <clears throat> in the days and weeks that follow this weird thing that happens. Well, Roswell died three days after it happened. The story died. After General Ramey said it was a weather balloon, people accepted that. Back in 47, we just came out of the Second World War. People trusted the, the military and the government. So if he said it was a pink elephant, they would have bought that because that's how much they respected the military and the government. So the story actually died for three days after it, was, after it happened. And uh, nothing happened again until 1974. That's when the Air Force came out with the Mogul balloon story. A Mogul balloon was a high altitude balloon used by the Russians, used by us to check to see if the Russians were doing any nuclear testing which they didn't do to 1949. So I don't know why we did the testing in 1947. Yeah. Or 74, I'm sorry, instead of 74. They didn't do any of that testing. So that, that story never, that never flew either. And then it died again. And why, would they, why would they come out, what, 30, 40 years later? Well, and say something interest, else? interest had picked up. Hmm. And they were starting to, to get interest in Roswell. And to cover their back, they came out with that mobile balloon story. <clears throat> then it died off, and again, interest people like Stanton Friedman and other researchers kept pushing it. And then they came out with this story about test crash dummies. Well, test crash dummies were five foot eight, weighed 170 pounds, had steel inside them, made out of a rubbery material. They were used to test parachutes, but they didn't use them for three years later. Three years later from the crash? From the, from the article. From the article? So there again. Why would you, yeah. So there again, it's a bogus story that they, that they put out. So, so, it, so all this renewed interest keeps coming up. Has any, so that was in the 70s, you know, decades after it happened. Mm -hmm. what, has, has anything new been added from the U.S. government regarding Roswell since then? The test, test dummies were the last thing. 
When was that? 80s. In the 80s. So, and that's when the books started coming out stuff. So for another 30 or 40 years, we've we basically added, the government has added nothing to the story. Right. Um, now, recently, the Department of Defense admitted that they have been looking at UFOs for several years and had a several thousand dollar budget to do that. And the guy that was a whistleblower had worked there at the Pentagon. They're looking at Navy film, pilots that have a camera yeah. and and track this stuff. And that's been released now. I, I that know has finally been that. released. Yeah. yeah. So that's the latest big thing that's happened as far as the government being involved in UFO research. Now, since we're on it, I want to come back to Roswell in a second. But the Navy, the Navy Air released footage and documents that says we've been looking at this, we are looking at this, and we don't know what it is. Have you seen those videos? I've seen, I've seen them on the internet, yeah. What, when you see that, what's your impression? I don't know what it is. It's just, it, it's a, a white little object on a screen on the, in the pilot's airplane. It's not anything definitive, really. It's, it's odd, right? It's just, all of this seems so very odd that so for something that the government says is nothing ultimately there's a lot of energy being expended to talk about nothing exactly exactly has been for 70 years see we knew we knew they were doing this this research we knew the government was doing it they just never admitted it and now they finally had to admit that they had a budget set up to to you to do ufo research so they finally had to admit that I'm too old, I don't expect disclosure in my lifetime. You're young enough, maybe in your lifetime, I hope you'll get the truth. One way or the other, doesn't matter. Like I said, if it's not, if it's not aliens, or what I think it is, then fine, go fishing. But I don't think we've been told the truth. Hmm. And that's all I wanted. I want to go back to the 40s. One thing that, you know, one of the, I want to talk about a few of the theories now that that people have to explain all alternate theories of what could happen out there. Um, let putting aliens on the shelf for just a second, mm -hmm. or something extraterrestrial. Okay. You know, I, I in season one of Crashed in Roswell, I had an interview with my uh, my wife's grandmother, who was a resident of Dexter, uh, New Mexico. Uh, Nellie Cunningham uh, was her name at the at the time. It was an interesting interview because she gave me insight on what life was like right there. Dexter being very, very close to Roswell, all of that kind of being conjoined. Mm -hmm. She gives a really interesting perspective of small town, you know, kind of farming community life and how they responded. And they did. They, If the government said something, they bought it. But at the same time, she said, you know, we, we trusted the government, but we still had our doubts, right? We still had our questions. So, so it seems like there was a through line, this, this thread of, of suspicion, but nobody really felt like they needed to do anything about it until the 70s. Sam Friedman comes along. He wants to study this. Why then? Why, why bring it up decades after the crash? Why, what compelled him to launch sort of a, a nationwide, worldwide, investigation in this small same thing i think the same thing that had me interested in it was that 
you hear about this and you're given a story, but you don't believe the story. So you look into it. And when you look into it, you uncover stuff. And that's what he did. He got it started. So aside from aliens, some of the theories I've heard, one of them being, uh, I don't like the term mass hysteria because it's not hysteric. It, it's maybe everybody's buying into a version of a story that they think they remember, but isn't true. Where someone says, well, I saw bodies and they the story gets told over and over and the details change ever so slightly that now decades later... Are you, are you old enough to remember or heard about Orson Welles' War of the, War of the World? Yeah, yeah. And for those who maybe don't know her listening, uh, infamously he goes on the radio and, and talks... Of, he, he, he has a production that seems like it's an alien invasion and people... Martians were invading the United States right. and people actually committed suicide over that radio show. They believed it. So panic would have been a real thing in the 40s. And today it wouldn't be. But back then I think panic could have been a real thing. And that was probably one reason they had to try to cover it up. They exposed it and then realized that was a mistake. We shouldn't have done that. So we cover it up. And luckily for them, it died. And wasn't really ignited again for 30 or 40 years. Stories like the one that Glenn Dennis heard from this nurse at the base who says she, she describes and draws a picture for him and you know we don't know who this nurse is and then she mysteriously dies. You've told me that you've had some doubts about that, mm -hmm. that story. What does that do what does that do to the story overall? I mean, we're told this, we'll give, this is one of only three eyewitnesses that talk about bodies and, and it's kind of questionable. It doesn't help the story at all. It, it hurts the story because here you have a guy that you, you think you're going to trust and it turns out you can't or you don't. So you look for another rock and turn another rock over and see if you can find something under that rock. And I don't completely dismiss him, but on the other hand, I don't completely accept it either. And that's part of my way of doing research, you know. Until I can prove one way or the other, I think it was Stanton said he had a gray box, where he kept stuff in a gray box, not knowing if it's true or not. And that's basically what I'm talking about, yeah. same thing. Here's, here's another theory that we a lot of people have heard uh, that might seem more popular among the theories, it was a spying device, either ours or Russian or... You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're coming out of a world war. We're going into a cold war very soon and into worldwide upheaval. You, you have some doubts about that. Why? No. Uh, I think it's altogether possible. You had some doubts of it being Russian or... Yeah, yeah, certain, certain I do, group, yeah. but I, 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 on the other hand, I have to accept the fact that it could have been our own stuff that we were playing with that we didn't know about. If that's the case, then I have the question, why haven't we used it in all the conflicts we've been in over the years? There'd be a tremendous advantage to the maneuverability of those craft that would be to our advantage militarily. And I can't rule that out. You got planets, you got clouds, you got airplanes, you got blimps, you got all kinds of things. It could be. 
those are all theories that need to be looked at. Yeah. Is there going to the site, talking about the, what it could be? Whatever it was, it was in the air, and then it was on the ground. Mm -hmm. So we got to wonder what brought it down to the ground. Is there any evidence or any scarring at the site at all? There are several theories. One was microwave radar was in use, and that could have interfered with it. I still go with the, th the thunderstorm, the lightning. Depending where they were from, maybe they don't know what lightning is. And lightning could mess up the propulsion system or the guidance system, and they'd have no control over it, perhaps. Hmm. But the fact that the rancher said he heard something louder than thunder, he knew what thunder was, and heard something, an explosion, the next morning he went out. Now, I don't necessarily buy that it hit the ground and then went a distance on the ground. The way that stuff was spread out, I'd almost think it, it exploded in the air and then spread out, which again could have been the lightning. So another monkey wrench in this thing, Stanton Friedman talks about two craft having a uh, mid-air collision. Hmm. One went down on the plains of St. Augustine out west, the other one up here at Corona. That's never been proven. Is there anything at the site that would lend itself to any credibility? I mean, is there any scarring? Is there any divots in the ground? Any strange anomalies that you could find? We did a, the museum did a uh, archaeological dig years ago. I got in on the last day of that, up at the site. They took, I think, 64 bags of material. Didn't find a thing. We thought varmints coyotes, rapids, whatever, could have buried stuff. Uh, there's a lot of voids in New Mexico. We thought maybe some of it had been underground. If there ever was a gouge where the craft came down, that's probably been covered up. 60, 70 years of dust storms and cattle going across it, sheep. We took a backhoe and did a cross dig across where we thought the groove was. My interpretation of that was that about two feet down, the earth looked like it was different. I think we should go back and look at that deeper because that two feet could have been blown in over 70 yeah. years with dust storms and stuff. That's the only physical thing I think we've ever found. What, what stops someone from doing that today? probably money, but I understand that the new owners of the ranch don't even want you up there. So it may be a problem even getting access to the place. Wow. The actual crash site, where the craft supposedly was, is BLM land, Bureau of Land Management, Department of the Interior. <clears throat> they did an environmental impact study a couple of years ago, which is common for most ranches. I heard about it, so I went out, out to the BLM, and as I understand, y'all did a impact study on the Foster Ranch. We did. I said, can I get a copy of it? Sure. They gave me a copy of it. I brought it home. It's quite voluminous. Started reading through it, and I come upon a section that said, be careful in this area due to the fact that aliens landed here. <laughs> This is signed off by eight people at the Bureau of Land Management. 
the next morning, eight o'clock, I'm at the BLM office. I say, who the hell wrote this? And where did you get this information? Oh, that's a joke, that's in-house. I said, it's got eight signatures on it. <laughs> well, that'll be, that won't be like that in the, in the final version. I said, here's my address, send me the final version. A Couple of months later, I got a copy of it. The final report said, this is the alleged site of the 1947 Roswell crash. To me, that was big. You got a government agency saying it's an alleged site. They're not saying it didn't happen or it did happen. Right. But they're leaving the possibility open. Now, in addition to that, they don't permit any building on that property on top. And they do not permit direct drilling. You can side drilling, drill it, but you can't direct drill it. That's in the environmental impact study. Interesting. I mean, it could have been a joke. Right, that someone put it in there. Yeah, so yeah. This is, this is a joke, but even still... But, but they had signatures on it. They say, hey, this is an official joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, again, it's, it's quite an epic story for it being, for it to be nothing, it's quite a lot of something. It is. You know, and uh, it's, it's fascinating what we don't know. You know, but I, I also understand Roswell isn't, Perhaps an isolated incident. I mean, what do we? I mean, this is a this is a huge question. But what do we know about UFO sightings or even UFO crashes around the world since then? It's been many decades since then. Wouldn't we have seen more crashes or we have sightings? We have. Rendlesham Forest in England, Kingman, Arizona, Aztec, New Mexico was ten months after Roswell. Really. 99-foot craft, intact, with 13 badly burned bodies inside. I first heard about this and didn't believe it. There had been a book out, extremely controversial. A guy named Scott Ramsey in Charlotte, North Carolina, started researching this. He said, I'm going to find out about this. He said, I can get this done in six months. Twenty years later, he wrote a book. He's been to the archives at the Air Force Museums. Him and I did lectures up at Aztec. I've been to the crash site several times. I don't know if that craft was here to see about what happened in Roswell 10 months later, or was it a separate incident? Don't know that. But the more I hear about it, the more I learned about it, the witnesses that I talked to, the more I believe it was a real case. Hmm. And apparently they had some kind of internal problem with the craft. And it came down on the mesa up there. Uh, oil field workers were in the area, saw smoke up on the mesa and had oil field tanks and stuff up there. So they went up there. Here's this 99 foot diameter craft sitting there. They climbed on it, looked through the windows, and saw 13 badly burned bodies. It described similar to what the bodies looked like here. The descriptions of crafts and bodies across from England to Arizona, are they consistent? At least in the description? The, the craft or not. There's probably 20, 25 different descriptions on craft shapes, different types. 
you got the disc, you got cigar shape, you got pear shaped, you got all kinds of shapes. Hmm. Bodies, we don't know a whole lot about what difference there are. Now the one at Aztec was supposedly similar to this one. We believe that craft, because 10 minutes after it happened, 10 or 15 minutes after it happened at Aztec, the military was there from Colorado, cordoned it off, swore the people to secrecy. And that craft was immediately moved out, we think taken to Los Alamos, a back route. From there, we don't know where, where it wound up. But this is definitely not the only no, no. Only incident, obviously, and like we said, there are sightings well, even the Navy had When I was to. doing the research on the internet, there were several different sites that listed sightings around the world. There probably wasn't a, a, a week go by that there weren't 25 to 50 sightings somewhere in the world. Now, sightings aren't that big a deal. Sightings could be anything. The term UFO itself means unidentified flying object. So if something goes across the sky here, I, that's not necessarily a spaceship. It's unidentified, so you don't know what it is. That's where the term comes from. But the actual term UFOs or aliens, flying saucers, started with Kenneth Arnold two weeks before Roswell. He was flying his private airplane between Mount Rainier and Mount Adams in the state of Washington on a research search. He saw 13 fast-moving objects go by him at tremendous speed. And when he landed, he was telling the news media about it, and they asked him to describe what they looked like. He said the best way to describe it, it looked like a saucer skipping across water. That was the term that's flying saucer. That's flying saucer. Pick, picked it up by the media. So that's where the term flying saucer started. Interesting. The, you know, just just hearing the story again, you know, we, we've gotten to sit and talk about it before. Hearing it again, it never ceases to amaze me. Again, how complex a story it is, Yeah. how fascinating it is for something that was supposed to be, again, so simple. You know, as we kind of get to the end of this, I want to I, I want to ask you a couple questions, at least one that I, I get asked. Well, let me start with this one. Now that you're retired, you're retired from researching, you're retired from tours uh, in Roswell, you've donated your research to the UFO Museum here, and that's it for you. Who's going to pick up the mantle and investigate this stuff further? I don't know of anyone. I don't know if anyone has the knowledge here about Roswell or about the city in southeast New Mexico. I got a real education getting into these tours because there was a lot about Roswell I didn't know. And there's a lot here. I mean, there's things here that people have no idea. You got a world's largest cheese factory. <laughs> you have two statues downtown, John Chisholm and Pat Garrett. Both those statues have Bible verses hidden on them. The sculptor put Bible verses on them. Really? I didn't even know that. I drive by it every day. <laughs> okay. If you look at the boots on Pat Garrett and John Chisholm, you see Bible verses. You got the German prisoners were here in the 1940s. They built the Iron Cross in Spring River. Isn't it, there was an internment camp of uh, right. German prisoners out here. A big one. Yeah. 
and you got the Iron Cross made out of rock that the, the prisoners built when they did the part of the Spring River. So there's a whole lot goes on here. We got five museums. This little town has five museums. Good, and we have some art that I can't believe. You know, there I know there's there's hidden bits of uh, of uh, oh the, the Western artist that I'm thinking of. Um, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean George O'Keefe, of course, was famous in the area. Uh, many famous. I mean, I can't. I walk into some of these museums. I can't believe. Yeah. That they left that here <laughs> for the little town. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's amazing, really. Brussels is a, probably the best kept secret in southeast New Mexico. It's it's a neat little town, and uh, I think it's a good place probably to raise kids. Uh, if people were coming, you know, when you had people on your tour, or if people were coming to Roswell, they're here to engage the story or find these amazing little treasures that really are hidden, you know, yeah. here or bottomless lakes or bitter lakes refuge or any of these places. What is it that you would hope visitors leave with after they've seen Roswell for themselves? A desire to come back. Hmm. I, I try to get people to stay longer than just the three or four hours they're here. And most don't because it, they're on a schedule to go somewhere else. But if you spend a little time here, you'll find out it's not a bad little town. And I found out with the trip advisor, with the comments, the excellent comments I got, probably 95% of them talked about what they learned about Roswell in addition to the UFO event. So I felt I did my job right by doing that because I got to share a lot. I had full support of the city, the mayor, uh, the licensing people, Bill Bartlett and that group. They knew I brought in a lot of tourism, and they appreciated what I did. Uh, so I'm happy with the way things turned out. Uh, it was a good ride. I enjoyed it. I, I'll miss parts of it. I'll miss the tours because I got to share a lot of research with a lot of people. I will. I tell you what, I appreciate you and uh, you. You know, you sitting down and sharing this again. We could spend another hour, two, three, talking about yeah. history in Roswell, not even getting, scratching the surface of, you know, mm -hmm. Lincoln County wars and stuff, Billy the Kid and, and so on, but uh, I hope that people hear this and I hope that it inspires them because there's more to Roswell than just t-shirts and green I'm hoping aliens, by right? them hearing this that maybe someone will do research and look into this themselves. Because you get hooked on it. Once you're into it, you, you're hooked. Because it just doesn't, it doesn't go away. You know, 70 years, you would think, it's all over. Nothing. Nothing happened. But we that hasn't been proven. Hmm. And it still remains an if to me. And, and I just don't believe we've been told the truth. Well, um, maybe in the... Maybe in the years to come, we will. I hope, for young people, I hope. Uh, put it behind us and get it over with. Uh, people today would accept whatever it was. Like I said earlier, panic would have been a real thing back then, but today, people are more educated. And the more educated you are, I think the more you think there's a possibility that there's life out there. 
you can't rule it out. And until they prove it is, we keep looking, I guess. We keep looking. Mm-hmm. Hey, look, thank you for this time. I am honored to not just talk with you, but to call you a friend. And uh, I wish you all the best in retirement. Well, I'm glad I got to do this. Uh, if, if I have the opportunity to do interviews, I'll continue to do them because I, I like sharing the information with the public because I believe what I have, the information I have, I think is as accurate as you're going to find it because I, I knew the people that were involved and that to me makes a big difference. It's not like I heard a story, I read a book. It's, I knew the people, some of them. Well, thank you. I I appreciate it. You guys have been listening to an interview now with with, uh, UFO expert Dennis Balthaser. My thanks to Dennis Balthaser, Ryan Bishop, and the International UFO Museum for helping make this episode and this series possible. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation with Dennis and want to support him and this series, be sure to check out CrashedInRoswell.com. You can link up with us on there and send us your messages or dive into this series a little further. Oh, and be sure that you hit subscribe to this podcast and follow us on social media because Crashed in Roswell Season 2 is on its way, starting at the beginning of 2021. Be on the lookout for the official release dates and information about the series on our social media pages. 